Um, again, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on the whole SegWit thing. I'm not, I don't even have enough hash power to block SegWit if I wanted to. Um, and I certainly won't be the lone holdout if SegWit gets to, you know, 94% of the worldwide, you know, hash rate supporting it. And I have 6% on my pool. I would switch. I, Are you willing to endorse SegWit? And if not, why not? Um, I'm certainly willing to consider endorsing SegWit. Um, I suppose the reason I'm not going to endorse SegWit today, SegWit today, is mainly because I feel like the current core team didn't listen at all to the actual business community that was using Bitcoin. Roger Ver uh, got his feelings hurt, and he doesn't like Blockstream, the guys at Blockstream, and so he wants to overthrow them. It's because Roger Ver wants these uh, Bitcoin to be developed for these Bitcoin companies, for these trusted third parties. You're listening to the Bitcoin and Markets Podcast. Hello, Bitcoiners. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets, episode 30. That clip you heard at the beginning was an interview with Roger Ver on Whalepool. Um, from yesterday, uh, I do a much longer clip and uh, some commentary later on in bits and pieces. Lots of stuff going on with the world of Bitcoin. We had a new highs on all dollar markets or on all markets except for, um, was it Bitfinex? I think Bitfinex was the only one that didn't make a new high. Um, but yeah, all the dollar markets finally made a new high. Bitstamp went all the way up to 793, so almost making it to 800. We'll see. There hasn't been a real correction after that, just a little bit back down into the resistance levels. I think we're waiting on Bitfinex to, to break that. But anyway, um, FOMC met today. What else do we have on deck here? We talk about Bitstamp, some stuff with Bitstamp. Uh, we talk about the FOMC. We talk about blockchains, dApps. What else? WikiLeaks, Circle, obviously, and Trade Wars heating up again. But before we get into that, let me just run down a quick market update like I have been doing. Um, all right, so dollar price right now, it did get up to the 793, but now it's back down to 775 on Bitstamp. Uh, like I said, broke those June high resistance, except for on Bitfinex. Um, we haven't seen a big reset yet. Uh, I don't know if it's going to go down or keep going up. There seems to be a ton of pressure trying to push on through. And uh, Bitfinex could be the one that's holding us up here on the dollar side. Okay, coin is sitting at 54.37. They uh, didn't make new highs yesterday, but they... They looked pretty good. Uh, they did surge with the dollar markets as well. Uh, local Bitcoins, the weekly volume is at 18.6. That's another all-time high up from 18.5 last week. Uh, so that's pretty good. That's, oh, sorry, $18.6 million. The network volume, so that's on-chain volume for Bitcoin, was $72.5 million. That's a little bit down. That's the 24-hour volume there. Next difficulty, though. This is one of the bigger stories. It's supposed to reset... Um, today, the 14th, later today, and it's estimated to be at 
that is pretty gigantic. Uh, we did have that 10% increase, then a 2% increase, and now it could be an 8% increase. There is a lot of hash power being added to the network right now. Hopefully the, you know, that, uh, gets, uh, turned into SegWit numbers, but, uh, the SegWit signaling is stuck around 25%. We'll see what happens. It is harder to implement SegWit than other upgrades in the past, and we don't want them to rush it. At least I don't want them to rush it. I want them to get it right. I don't want a miner to implement it, start signaling, they get some SegWit blocks, and now they're screwed or something happens, right? So we want them to do it right. It might take a little while, but I'm I'm thinking in a couple months from now still that we're we're gonna be going. And we're we're only a month in. They started counting on the fifteenth of November, right? So we're only a month in. Unlimited is uh, staying around 10%. We'll see. But with this Roger Ver interview, some other stuff, um, I think there's a lot of momentum shifting right now. Um, and like I said, a lot of miners are working on it to implement it. So we, we just have to hold on for that. Okay, enough of me jabbering on the intro. Let's get into the main content. Bits and pieces. Okay, in bits and pieces, what I try to do is go over main stories out there, some that you might have missed, um, some that are hard to pick out from the noise, because there's so much blockchain this, blockchain that, altcoin pumping everywhere, um, you, you know, some uh, news about the block size, Bitcoin Limited, what Roger Ver said here, there, um, even Ethereum, some of that stuff. It's hard to find these really important pieces of news. And they kind of round out your knowledge because I, I don't, I know you guys are looking at the news. Um, I know you guys are following Coindesk and, and you guys are reading uh, Reddit and, and all these things. But anyway, okay, so bits and pieces. First story is about Circle. They dropped their Bitcoin buying and selling. And they were kind of a Coinbase type uh, competitor where you could buy and sell your Bitcoins there. You could also send them with, they had a wallet solution. They're keeping their wallet, but they're pivoting to uh, dollars, euros, and pounds, not Bitcoin anymore. So they're dropping this this whole Bitcoin thing. And... Uh, well, I guess that they, you can still buy Bitcoin through Coinbase and have them sent to your wallet, uh, your circle wallet. Um, but you can no longer buy and sell them, uh, on circle. So Coinbase is like their quote unquote, it's something like preferred exchange partnership program with Coinbase. Um, but I think this is good for Coinbase. I don't know if it's good for, Bitcoiners, but uh, it is good for Coinbase because they're consolidating this limited demand out there to buy KYC Bitcoins. People that go through the trouble to buy at Coinbase are probably gonna are probably gonna hold it for a long time. I'm I'm guessing if you if you are like a dark market person, you're somebody that's using Bitcoin all the time uh, for different buying and selling and different transactions and stuff, you're probably going to buy it from a, not a KYC source. 
So you're going to buy it on local bitcoins, packs full, things like that. Uh, if, if you're buying from Coinbase, you're probably going to buy and hold. That's, that's my suspicion. And so there's not a lot of volume. Um, you maybe make a monthly purchase of a couple hundred bucks, whatever you can spare, and you hold it. That's it. You're not buying and selling constantly. That's why Coinbase opened up their exchange, right? Because they needed to get those fees. There was just no volume that they could make up by just buying and selling. Because they charged, what, like 1% or something. I mean, they could have done it if they upped their percentage to 5%. But then how do you compete against, say, the ATMs, right? The ATMs are around 5 to 10%. So why would you go through Coinbase if they're 5%? When the ATMs are... are pretty much anonymous for for the most part so anyway this was a a good thing for coinbase to pick up it might give them a few more customers it might give them a little bit more runway i still think they are in pretty big trouble with the irs and um in the long run they're gonna have to like theo goodman has said and other people have said uh in the space that they are probably going to go to like a shitcoin exchange like a poloniex right and they're not going to be able to compete with Poloniex, in my opinion, because they're too highly regulated. They're, they are too compliant. Poloniex, like, stiff arms everything, and Coinbase welcomes everything. And look at where it's got them. It's got them in the IRS. Uh, or it's got them with the IRS right over their heads. So anyway, let's get back to Circle. Circle got rid of this, and their, their CEO, Jeremy Allaire, he had some tweets or posted this somewhere that he was dissing on the slow development of Bitcoin and how uh, just dissing on the whole process, the whole open source nature of Bitcoin, saying it needs to be more centralized. They need to have regulation. You know, regulation is good, blah, blah, blah. So he's obviously totally lost his mind. Um, he's one of these big B VCs that want to play up to the uh, libertarian anarchist people in Bitcoin because they see this huge opportunity just like we all do but when they have to quit when they have to pivot because they just lost a bunch of money or they're not making any money whatever they're going to throw a little temper tantrum on the way out it wasn't as bad as Mike Hearn right and we get to see their what they're what they really think what these people really really think um they are they are pro-regulation because they want they want to keep their privileged position. And they understand that to keep their privileged position, they need to have the uh, regulations protect them. So anyway, he, he did a, a mini rage quit. Uh, everybody jumped all over it saying, uh, you know what, if you want Bitcoin to be like your business model or to help your business model, maybe you should have committed a line of code. Circle never committed a line of code or a stinking uh, millibit to the <laughs> development of Bitcoin Core. Never. And then they're sitting there complaining about it. Morons. All right, a related topic I wanted to touch on real quick is that I think it is a good thing for people to do is to keep like, I don't know, I keep a little spreadsheet of different people in the space and mark down, you know, when they do something fishy or scammy or whatever. So then I can come back later and 
oh, this person's on this new project? Well, it's obviously a scam because this person is a big fat scammer. Just like if any project would ever have Stefan Tool on it, or the Tooman Brothers, or have Jeremy Lair behind it, or uh, Big Vern, any of these like major scammers in the past. Even, um, what's his name? Jeff Garza? Um, oh, God, there's... Well, I've obviously Roger Ver uh, is trying to destroy Bitcoin. Um, God, uh, who's that one guy's name? Who's that one guy? Uh, Marshall Long. Anytime that these names are on a project, you know it's a fucking scam. So that's my advice to listeners out there is, you know, just start a simple, simple spreadsheet and start marking down names of, of people as you notice that they're scammers and like mine has like what project they're on and uh, a little description of why <laughs> why they're a fucking scammer because of that project but some people i have multiple times like gavin andreessen i have him in there for uh the craig wright thing that was what sealed the deal but i also have him in there for classic and um um xt and I don't know if he's in with this Bitcoin Limited. I can't remember off the top of my head right now. But yes, he is in there three times. So just go ahead and mark people multiple times. Just add entries. That's what I do. And um, when I need to, then I can sort it by the name or something like that. Um, but yeah, we need to hold these people accountable. Don't ever believe anything Jeremy Allaire says again. If he start if he starts some new project and comes out um and everybody's like flipping their shit over it cuz it was posted on Reddit that some big company is starting some new project and it's going to be started by Jeremy Lair, you can call bullshit on it. Or if there's something like Stefan Tool working with a bank in the UK to do some sort of tokens, you can call fucking bullshit. Never believe anything that Stephen Tool does again. But anyway, that that's I just wanted to throw that out there. It might be helpful for you guys. It's been helpful for me. Um, I'm not too far into it. I have probably 50 different entries, um, but I'm I'm building that out, and I think it's 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 important to do that. Okay. All right, another piece of news that is all around Bitcoin is talking about uh, India and Venezuela now has joined this ban on cash. So Venezuela is starting to take the highest denomination bills out of circulation, just like India did. And if you listen to my show where I talk about that a few episodes ago, uh, when when India when that just hit, uh, they were confiscating. I I was a little bit more neutral on it. Because I didn't see it as, I don't, I guess I didn't see India as being like a front line in this currency war. Right? I mean, I guess they are one of the larger economies in the world with the second largest population. They should probably, why wouldn't they be a front line? But I still really don't see them as a front line in this currency war. The only reason why they would be is because of this uh, stance that they've taken. 
And yeah, now they're talking hard, but it's still really hard for me to, to believe that. I know they're in a war for the Kashmir region. I know they suffer terrorist attacks. I know they have a corrupt system with lots of dark money or black money, whatever they want to call it. Lots of dark markets, very corrupt politicians, you know, very corrupt local politics. Probably some of the most corrupt local politics in the world. And to me, it just makes a little bit of sense that they were actually trying to cut down on this corruption and the uh, terrorist funding. Especially since they're replacing the currency. They are taking the 500 and 1,000 bills away. They're replacing the 500 as quickly as they can. They haven't done it very well. And that's where a lot of the conspiracy comes in. Um, which I am a conspiracy theorist, so it doesn't... I can understand that. But they're, but they're adding a 2,000 rupee bill. And I do understand that that kind of stuff takes some time. Um, so this, I'm still not convinced. I understand what people are saying about this. And I understand that it is a mark of, uh, currency, the, uh, at least the way that currency is seen and, valued around the world that it's something that can be just taken away and i said this when i first started talking about it that it's seen that it can just be taken away it's not your currency so more than um a secret plot to go to a cashless society even though modi has said stuff in that vein <laughs> i uh I think the most important thing to take away is that the way that governments see people, that is their money, and they will take it. They will tell you what to do with it. You are secondary to their money. That's the most important thing, I think, the biggest takeaway. Of course, now that Venezuela is doing the same thing, they've even used the mostly the same phrases, right? They're fighting the black market. I mean, there's huge differences here. Venezuela, the black market is people trying to eat and feed their family and stay alive, right? Taking 100 Boulevard notes to the border to buy food. Where in India, that is not that bad and is known for its corruption. And they say that it's to cut down on terrorism, terrorism and corruption. You know, by getting rid of this quote-unquote black money, I can totally see that. Now, I'm not supporting, <laughs> I'm not supporting India. I think it's horrible what they're doing. Uh, they're stealing from people and they are crashing their economy. They're causing uh, massive problems and upheavals in their society. I don't think that's good at all. Um, I'm just skeptical. Especially since India is supposed to be replacing these bills. Why would they be replacing them if they wanted to get rid of cash? Some of the things don't add up, but I'm on the fence. I could easily go towards the, this is a cashless society type um, push. But why is India the front line? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So I tend to be very skeptical of that. <laughs> I was recently talking with a buddy, 
Paul. He's a good friend that, uh, you know, we talk about all this Bitcoin stuff together. And um, he pointed out that, you know, WikiLeaks has swayed an election. It swayed the the biggest election in the world, the president of the United States. It had a hand in that. That is a huge watershed moment where this rogue free press affects elections. And I don't think it can be overstated. Everywhere from the Hillary Clinton email server to the Podesta emails. All of those things swayed that election and helped Trump get elected. Now, whether that's good or bad, it is, that's the fact of the matter. And where did WikiLeaks turn in their hour of need several years ago? To Bitcoin. And this is a story out of Bitcoin Magazine that was just published. Um, I didn't even see this until my friend <laughs> said, you need to get on that, uh, talking about that. Because WikiLeaks just received their, uh, 40, or sorry, 4,000th Bitcoin. Which at today's price is 3 million. Now, granted that those weren't all donated at over $700 of value, but, um, you know, in today's money, that is three million over $3 million. So, Bitcoin played a big role in WikiLeaks history. Um, this In this article, Aaron Van Verden, he says, Digital currency has proven vital for WikiLeaks survival over the past years. Shortly after the release of classified U.S. diplomatic cables in November 2010, all donations to WikiLeaks were blocked by major payment providers, including Bank of America, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, and Western Union. This embargo is said to have initially destroyed 95% of the organization's revenue, almost killing WikiLeaks in the progress. By opening up to Bitcoin and Litecoin donations over the years, the media organization received a majority of all funds in digital currencies. The 4,000 Bitcoins sent to WikiLeaks public donation address add up to almost 3 million. Okay. Um, so through the media or though the media organization received most donations throughout 2011, 2012, when the digital currency was worth less than $10, a rough estimate of total donations value suggests WikiLeaks received a total of over $170,000 worth of Bitcoin to the public address. WikiLeaks held on to most of its Bitcoins it received, speculating on a price increase that provided lucrative, that proved lucrative, as Assange said in a Reddit AMA. And this is from Assange in the AMA. WikiLeaks strategic investment in the currency saw more than 8,000% return in three years, seeing us through the extra legal U.S. banking blockade. So Bitcoin played a role in this. Bitcoin has stepped onto the international stage. Bitcoin has changed the course of history right now. I mean, it, obviously it is, it is in itself making history every day, but this is a direct consequence of Bitcoin saving WikiLeaks at the time. So I think this, this is a pretty big deal and I wish it would be getting more attention out there because, uh, you know, uh, Andreas and last week I, I talked about um, Andreas talked about th this in his most recent um, coin scrum appearance and uh, I talked about this on the last episode is that you know we're 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 about to enter this uh, currency war Bitcoin is 
we're right there on the precipice of entering this currency war and things are about to get wild. And this, the, the reason or the uh, fact that Bitcoin saved WikiLeaks and that they're holding Bitcoin and helping them, that's helping them fight legal uh, problems in the U.S. That's huge. That should tell anybody in the world. If they believe in what WikiLeaks is doing, they need to start investing in Bitcoin. And that's going to, that's, that's going to happen. All right. So there hasn't been a ton of drama around the exchanges since uh, the Bitfinex hack. Uh, but there is some news about Bitstamp. Bitstamp is now kind of my preferred price standard for the U.S. dollar price of Bitcoin. Um, since that Bitfinex hack, uh, I was a trader on Bitfinex. I don't trade there anymore. They locked U.S. people out of, of margin positions, and I don't really sell my Bitcoins very much. I just use them to uh, make long bets on margin. But I don't trade at Bitstamp either for that reason because Bitstamp doesn't offer margin. But I like that in um, Bitstamp is very old. I think it's over five years old now. And uh, they have been pretty consistent. I think they've been hacked once, maybe twice back uh, several years ago. But they are very solid. And the fact that they don't use margin keeps their volume uh, down. I think it keeps it more solid. Right. There's not as much um, like high frequency trading going on on Bitstamp. So I, I do I do like that. But the news from Bitstamp is uh, that they are cutting out or they're cutting their service to Washington state here in the United States, far uh, northwest coast of the United States. They have some, I guess, some new regulations up there for money transmitter or whatever. And uh Bitstamp doesn't think that they should be there. Now they're, they say in their press release that I link in the show notes that they're going to uh, be working on this with the state regulators and see if they can work something out and resume service there. But right now they're cutting off service. And another piece of news from Bitstamp is also that they're trying to raise funding. I brought this up on Twitter. I'm, you know, they're trying to raise, I think, five million or something at a sixty million valuation, um, which is interesting. I mean, they're using the bank bank to the future platform. That's Max Kaiser's thing, uh, and um, yeah, it's just a little bit weird. They don't have. They're not like saying, "Oh, we need to raise this money because we want to start offering margin, or we have these big plans uh, for new." product line or new service line or whatever no they're just saying we need five million dollars and that that doesn't instill confidence too much in me they're, they're five years old they're not some uh you know one month old startup or or one year old startup they are a five-year-old company that's been around for a long time with solid volume so why are they doing this? What's their plan? It just makes me a little bit iffy on them. Um, I always watch this kind of stuff. I thought you guys might be interested in that. If I were Bitstamp, I would probably just raise my fees a little bit. I don't know exactly their fee structure, but, um, I mean, if they're taking, you know, a tenth of a percent for maker fees, 
yada, 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 or taker fees, I would just bump that up a little bit maybe. You might hurt your volume. I I don't know. Maybe they've done some some research on that. But the people that are buying and selling a Bitstamp, I don't know if they if they really would. They're not high frequency traders, so I don't think that they would mind all that much if you bumped the fee even, you know, maybe ten or twenty percent higher than it is now. I would go that route before I raised money for no reason. At least have some sort of project that uh, you are claiming to fund. That would be at least better. Uh, but maybe they're running out of runway. I don't know. I hope not. But I'll be watching this story. A pretty big thing happened yesterday. Roger Ver went on to Whalepool. Uh, if you guys don't know them, uh, I will put a link in the show notes to this specific interview and also i recommend uh subscribing to their youtube channel i'll put a link to that as well um, they they do some good stuff i mean they are a, a, a group of traders so if you want to get into trading um they they might be a good place to start uh, i just caution noobs and everybody out there to realize that um traders are trying to make money Right. And I remember when I was in the troll box a lot, um, you can never trust what people are saying. Um, I, I think the whale pool guys are genuinely good guys, but you never know. Right. Do your research. Know, n do some technical analysis, uh, you know, understand the market and only risk what you're willing to lose. Um, these guys could help you. They could hurt you. Uh, I don't know. Just always be skeptical of things like this. But I, I think they are genuinely good guys. Uh, at least the majority of them. And they have some really good content uh, from what I've seen. So uh, I, I recommend checking them out. <laughs> I'm not being paid to say that they're good guys or anything. Anyway, this was a really good uh, interview. Watch the whole thing or listen to the whole thing. It is really enlightening. Eric Lombroso, awesome. I am like, I like him more and more every time I hear him talk. He is so down to earth. Um, he's so down to earth that I can't believe like, um, he's a hardcore programmer, you know, because he is a really good, he understands people really well. <laughs> and, uh, Phil Potter, uh, he's the guy, one of the C-suite dudes or one of the C-level guys at, uh, at Biffinex, he seems really down to earth too. And I, I've heard him on, on Whalepool a couple times. Uh, they've, they've interviewed him after the hack and all that. Uh, I think he is, uh, he, he seems like a pretty stand up, stand up guy that really has, um, I mean, his best interests at heart from Biffinex, but, uh, you know, he knows the industry really, really well. Um, and he seems to have Bitcoin in general. He understands this ethos that's going on here. Um, Alex, uh, what's his last name? Petrov. He's a guy from Bitfury. He has some really good, like, charts that he tweets out. And, and, um, you know, Bitfury is kind of this, uh, enigmatic player in the space no one knows exactly where they stand politically which is good 
for for miners as really good but they kind of have this counterweight that they are big time insiders in mining so um whatever he has to say is really good and then finally you have Ver, which we all know about Ver. anyway this little clip i think is the meat of the podcast it's around minute 55 or so they're talking about uh, what uh, Ver doesn't like about Segwit uh, he he goes on a side tangent right before this clip about uh, the censorship which I've covered that it's not really censorship right <laughs> censorship is when you're scared for your property you're scared for your life and your freedom that's censorship this is moderation there's huge difference this is the freaking internet people Get, grow some balls and deal with it. So, uh, anyways, yeah, so he goes on a tangent about that and he never really talks about Segwit. And this is when he jumps it back into Segwit real quick and they hold him to it. Phil Potter kind of asks some really good questions. He takes the lead on this point, this part. Um, I'll come back after this clip. Okay. No, hold on a second. And sorry, we kind of got sidetracked from Segwit. Um, again, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on the whole Segwit thing. I'm not, I don't even have enough hash power to block Segwit if I wanted to. Um, and I certainly won't be the lone holdout if Segwit gets to, you know, 94% of the worldwide, you know, hash rate supporting it and I have 6% on my pool. I would switch. I wouldn't block it at all. But you're, you're an influential voice, Roger. I mean, you know, it, the, 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 the thing is, is it, it is here right now. And it does, and it has undeniable benefits. If, you know, if we can list them, but being the block size thing alone. But I think that Segwit would, Dramatically benefit from benefit from at the chance of activation, which I think is a good idea. It's very well tested. It's there. It may not be the solution that you want or that everybody else wants, and it may be just one step toward more solutions down the road. But your endorsement would go a long way toward toward convincing miners, I think, to start uh, start um, signaling for it. Would you? Are you willing to endorse Segwit? And if not, why not? Um, I'm certainly willing to consider endorsing Segwit. Um, I suppose the reason I'm not going to endorse Segwit today, Segwit today, is mainly because I feel like the current core team didn't listen at all to the actual business community that was using Bitcoin. And but that but that doesn't have anything to do with the code that's there and ready right now. And I understand your points. Your points about Thamus, I'm with you on that. I think there is you know there is the censorship in in our Bitcoin is a little heavy handed times. But that Thamus is not a core developer. Okay, and the core devs—you can't say the core didn't listen because there's a was an active discussion on the mailing list ongoing. You know, there's no there's no censorship there. Okay, but but this is it's here now, so it doesn't matter. I don't think it should matter how we got here. We have to think about the future, like you say. And it's a product that's here. It's now. It's very well tested, and it just seems to me it'd be a real shame for not to activate or to delay activation. Why? Yeah. Um, I suppose at this point, because I feel that the current core team hasn't listened enough, um, and they're, obviously that's debatable, um, but from my perspective, I, I really feel like I'm, that they didn't listen to the coin bases and the blockchains and of, of the world and the businesses that are actually bringing Bitcoin to the, make it usable for the masses. Um, it, it takes both sides of the equation here. It takes the business side and it takes the technical side to make the underlying protocol robust to do that enough, but uh, I feel like they've pushed out a lot of the people. You know, Gavin Andreessen has been treated horribly by the current core dev team. And I, I think that's a really, really shame. You know, I, this is the guy that Satoshi himself handed over the control of the project to, and he's now basically been pushed, you know, all but pushed out of the project completely. And so at this point, I wouldn't feel at all bad if additional competing protocol development teams 
start rivaling Core's position for you know, the top spot in protocol development. But, but, the, but Dart Roger, that's like saying that the, the Nash equilibrium is bullshit because John, because Nash was a schizophrenic. And you should, you know, despite the fact that he got a Nobel Prize. You, know, you, you have to just look at the work, the code that we have in front of us now. We're at this impasse right now where... You know, it's it's almost like it's almost like I, I feel, and I may be mischaracterizing, and I, and I hope I'm not, but it feels like it's, it feels like you're leading a filibuster. You know, really, just just because you you're, you're trying to force something that is otherwise, you know, has I think groundswell support and 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 should get activated. It's here. It's it's really well tested. It's here today. And then we can debate what the next step is. But I think that to block it, what or or, to, or not to endorse it for political reasons. Just strikes me as is, is is standing in the way of progress for Bitcoin. So I, I tend to agree with everything that you just said right there, Phil. But I also think that everything you just said applies equally to Bitcoin XT and then Bitcoin Classic and now Bitcoin Unlimited by the other side. I think that there's a lot of uh, political. But those, those, but those are hard that. forks, Roger. Those are hard forks, and and and, I, and, I, and we can have those debates and we can discuss that. But I think that as we we've, we've discussed already here tonight, I mean, hard forks, a contentious hard fork that doesn't have overwhelming support is is just a really scary proposition, you know, unless, like I said earlier, unless we really do the science and the, and the engineering and the research behind how do we do hard fork safely, and there's some ideas about that, and if we're going to do a hard fork, let's think about more than just simply block size. So we can have those discussions, but SegWit is here today. It's a, it's a soft fork. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very careful piece of engineering. It solves lots of problems besides just scaling. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just... I mean, if, you're, if one way to really sort of destroy Bitcoin, I think, is to is is for this to not activate because of politics and completely discourage all the people that volunteer their time to to to, to work on Bitcoin, which are dozens of people uh, who are not just Blockstream, you know. Um, and I just feel like I feel like it would be a real shame for that to happen at this at this stage. So I'm I'm open to those arguments, Phil, and I'll give that some more thought over the coming days. Uh, I guess one. One, one point I would like to, to disagree with on site is I don't think it's fair to say that SegWit has overwhelming support. It has about 25% of the hash rate, and Bitcoin uh, uh, wait, wait. has about 15% uh, uh, of the hash uh, rate. Of miners, so. they're relatively centralized, okay, they're mostly in China, and there's been a big political effort to kind of delay or block. And there's also, it, it's technically also a pain in the ass for miners to upgrade to this one, too. So I think that part of what we're seeing here is a delay in, uh, in miners being able to sig- signal. But, and maybe Alex can speak to that, frankly. Um, but, uh, okay, you know, I, I think that overwhelming support, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are a lot of users that would just assume see it rather than not see it. Um, I don't think that there's a, I think there's a minority of people that say, I don't want SegWit, block it. I mean, that just seems completely counterproductive. It is what we have. It's, you know, it may not be the best thing, but it's what we have now. You know, uh, you know, I'm always reminded of the Winston Churchill, you know, uh, quote, you know, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others, you know, and maybe SegWit is that. Maybe it's just the lesser of evils. We just have to, it's just, it's the compromise solution. But more importantly, it's the tested solution that we have before us right now, and it's a soft fork. So, but look, I respect that you have your opinions on this, and, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, 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 to ride you too hard about it. I apologize. No, you're, you're, you're making a strong case, and I'll, I'll give it some more consideration. Um... All right, so he goes on after that to say, ask some questions about SegWit and exact, um, obviously showing that he doesn't even know what's going on with SegWit. Um, <sighs> Phil Potter brings up some great points. 
And <laughs> you can see he totally leaves Roger Ver grabbing for straws. Roger Ver says this, and then Phil Potter's like, uh, or, or Roger Ver says, yeah, okay, um, it's the core was really, really mean and hurt my feelings. And so they, they don't listen to anybody. And so we have to stop them. We have to take them down. And, uh, Phil Potter does a great job bringing it back saying, listen, this is what we have. This is a science question. This code is done. It's ready to go. Uh, you can't, uh, he uses the Nash equilibrium example. So, it stands on its own. It's scaling solution. It's ready to go. It's a soft fork. And then Roger Ver comes back and says, like, well, okay, I agree with all that, except, look, the same can be said about Classic and XT and Bitcoin Limited. And they said, he stops them right there. No, 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 no. That's a damn hard fork. See, Ver doesn't even get the hard fork, soft fork thing. Okay? Um, he, he's, this is a 100% Roger Ver got his feelings hurt. Roger Ver uh, got his feelings hurt, and he doesn't like Blockstream. The guys at Blockstream, and so he wants to overthrow them. I mean, it's a uh, going deep one deeper than that. It's because Roger Ver wants these uh, Bitcoin to be developed for these Bitcoin companies, for these trusted third parties. He wants to develop Bitcoin to help the businesses. That is not what Bitcoin is for. You cannot develop something to be tailored for a business. And he, earlier on in this thing that I, again, I recommend you guys listen to this whole thing. Um, he talks about blockchain.info and Coinbase and all these other companies, trusted third parties. They want this development a certain way. And Bitcoin Core or Blockstream didn't listen to these concerns of business. Well, good. I don't want my developers listening to businesses. I don't want my developers being uh, told what to do by these trusted third parties. This is Bitcoin, god damn it. You cannot develop a project like this for us with a certain business model in mind development is not for the business model if you want to do a, a layer two type technology for a business model go for it look look at what coinbase does i mean they have these this internal stuff where they manage the bitcoins inside of their own service and that you know that works for them that's great I support developers doing that kind of stuff, but not on the core protocol. You cannot develop Bitcoin with a business model in mind. And when you bring that up, you know, you're obviously showing that you don't have Bitcoin's best interest at heart. You don't understand. And so when the core developers kind of poo poo what he says, they get, he gets his feelings hurt. And now he's going to filibuster this whole thing. He cannot let core win. And he was made to look like a fool grabbing at straws here. And I love this. This was exactly like kind of, well, not exactly, but it's similar to what happened with uh, classic. You just give them enough rope and they'll eventually hang themselves. 
And that's what Roger Ver has been doing as he's coming out and do, uh, saying all this stuff on Reddit, doing all these interviews for podcasts, like uh, let's talk Bitcoin. And now this whale pool. Um, and before that, uh, he did Bitcoin uncensored. Every time he goes on this thing, he, he gets crushed a little bit more. His feet are held to the fire a little bit more and he's proven to be, uh, shyster. And I, I hate saying this because I, uh, I, DeRose, uh, Chris DeRose said the same thing that he thinks Roger's a nice guy. Roger is a very gentle person. Okay. I, he's probably a very, very nice person. I've seen him speak in person one time. He was a little bit, uh, awkward. I don't know how to put it, but he's very nice. He's a nice person. But at this, this time right here, he is not doing what's best for Bitcoin. He's not being honest. And you can feel that in this interview. You can feel his lies. You can feel that he's not being honest with it. I mean, he's being honest in saying that this is why I think this because my, uh, I'm, my feelings got hurt from some of the people at Blockstream. Yeah, that's honest. But he's not being honest in his, like, um, intensity of his concerns. So he, he leads you to believe that, that he really, really doesn't want to go, uh, with Segwit because he really, really believes in this other stuff. And another thing that supports it is his feelings were hurt. No, no, no. It's backwards. His feelings were 100% hurt. This is 100% political. It's 100% a coup. And that is exactly what it is. And he's not being honest with that. His only argument that has any merit whatsoever is that his feelings were hurt. Technically, there's nothing there. Censorship, there's nothing there. There is nothing there except for his feelings were hurt. That is true. And I'm sorry, but that is not a reason to do this. Okay, that's all I have. Uh, pretty big interview in the space. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Whalepool, Mr. Hodel. He was, I think, the interviewer or the guy that kind of led the discussion. Thank you for all those guys that took part in that. It was really great. And um, I hope there's no problem problem that i shared this few minutes um again my listeners go listen to that whole interview uh, check it out altcoin bill this is going to be a pretty short altcoin bill um there isn't much news out there ethereum is still tanking um, the price will probably uh, stay above the recent lows that they had uh, for the rest of the year. But I do expect the downtrend to continue. There's no good news coming of Ethereum. And the, I, I just, I don't see how anybody can expect it to increase in value. Uh, so anyway, that's Ethereum. Uh, so in the same vein of altcoins, though, I want to bring up a piece but on futurism.com 
And the title is Blockchain Technology and the Law Aren't Enemies, They're Allies. I think this was written by Consensus. They're a company that has to do with dApps and Ethereum and smart contracts and all that BS, right? Um, now, remember, dApps are decentralized applications and uh, smart contracts are supposed to be like self-executing contracts. And we've proven that they don't work. They they could have bugs and then they're no good. They will have bugs and they are no good. Uh, so consensus anyway, that's their whole business model. But they, they are trying to talk about blockchain technologies and law. Because remember that people are starting to realize that these smart contracts and uh, kind of blockchains that have smart contracts, they need to be centralized. And so they will be regulated. There is going to be a an entity involved that can be regulated. And people are starting to understand that. And I talk about that in my my blockchain par, uh, blog post where I say that blockchains are government resistant. And so if there's something that is uh, centralized that can be regulated, it's not a blockchain, or at least it won't work as a blockchain. So th this is all just crazy talk here, but uh, consensus, they're saying, okay, they need to have, there, there's room for government to be involved. Um, I won't read this all to you, um, except I want to read their conclusion, because I think this just <laughs> uh, sums up the hilarity. So... Um, I am, quote, I am certain that decentralized applications and their features are uh, no less compatible with existing legal constructs than prior revolutionary technologies were. However, compatibility may require linking long, uh, thinking long and hard about how laws written before the dawn of decentralization can harmonize with such a powerful disruptive force. <laughs> End quote. I would say in here, you need to think long and hard about how a decentralized contract is going to be able to adjust to changing regulations. If it's truly like an immutable thing that cannot be changed, then it's not going to adjust to your fucking regulations. If it can adjust to regulations because it's centralized, it's not a fucking dap. Get that through your head, people. Decentralized applications cannot obey regulation. Period. If regulation changes, the DAP is no longer compliant. It doesn't matter if it was made compliant in the first place. You cannot guarantee that regulation will not change. And also, on top of that, you can't guarantee that there's not a bug in that DAP. So if you... You can't guarantee that the DAP will work as advertised, and you can't guarantee that the regulations won't change. This is a fool's errand. This is the definition of a fool's errand. I cannot believe that people would be so stupid to believe this. I tweeted about this on my BTC MRKTS, my Bitcoin and Markets account. Um, I said consensus claims blockchains and law can work together. But they don't know trusted third parties break blockchains. 
Blockchains were designed to get rid of these trusted third parties. And the only way you can have a trusted third party, or the only way you can have a blockchain, is to not have a trusted third party. God damn it, people. When will you wake up? You cannot have a blockchain and a trusted third party. You cannot regulate a DAP. A DAP is like regulation by itself already. It's self-regulating, self-executing. That's what it is. If you want to freeze your regulations in stone, then yes, we could probably make something that will work very, very, very simple tasks. That will do very simple tasks. Like count seconds or something. But there's going to be bugs. There's going to be vulnerabilities to these dApps. You cannot say that this dApp is going to run as advertised and be compliant. Okay, so that sounds pretty negative. But uh, what do I recommend for these people? Well, I recommend if you're going down the compliance route, if you're going towards a centralized type solution, just go all the way. You won't be able to headquarter your company in the United States. Headquarter it somewhere else, like Switzerland, like Ethereum has been doing. Or, I don't know, some other place with really good uh, regulations for internet companies. And base it out of there. Offer, you know, Tor support and, and all that. And do your, your centralized service some other place. You'll be much more successful than trying to veil it in this decentralized uh, cloak of nothingness. Okay, there is nothing here. You're going to fail. You're going to waste a bunch of fucking time, money, and reputation on this bullshit. Just move your damn headquarters and make a centralized service. A centralized smart contract platform. And then build a reputation that you are the provider of, like, a neutral platform. It's centralized, so it's very efficient. And you can change it, and we can do some things that are, you know, mess with the compliance of smart contracts and yada, yada, yada. But we are a neutral party in our, by ourselves. You know, we're building this reputation as we're not running away with your money, etc., etc. I mean, look at um, Shapeshift. They do offer a service. It's not exactly a smart contract, but it's like a vending machine, right? You put it in one end and it comes out the other end with a different token. They're centralized service, but they have built a reputation on being uh, that you can count on them. And they've structured it in a way that they're not holding clients' funds, etc., etc., right? And so they're working around the regulation. They're being compliant, but they're a third-party service that's doing smart contract-like stuff. That is viable. But saying we're going to do decentralized applications on an Ethereum-like blockchain and make it compliant is bullshit. Featured article.
I failed in my task. I was trying to get this out before the FOMC decision was released. I did not do that. They have raised rates, uh, another 25 basis points, and the dollar right now is responding. It's up about two-thirds of a point. We'll see where that ends up for the day. I haven't looked at the stock markets yet. Uh, this just came out. Uh, but anyway, so I recorded this earlier today, and I'll play that, and then I might say something towards the end. The biggest story out there in world markets is the FOMC meeting today. They're going to have the interest rate decision and uh, see if they're going to raise rates or keep them the same. 100% of economists polled by multiple places are saying that they expect them to raise rates. 100% of traders think they're going to raise rates. It's been at 100% for, for a couple weeks now. Everything has been priced in, or at least the move has been priced in. If you look at, um, you know, the 10 year treasury or you look at uh, the dollar, it's been going up over the last couple months, last month. Um, some of the moves have been dramatic. So, um, it's pretty much priced in from my, my, um, position, but I, I would be remiss not to talk about it since this is a kind of a world market show or global market show. Um, I'm changing my outlook. Um, I previously had a tentative no hike, but over the last couple of weeks, you know, it's become apparent that they're going to hike. It's just a matter of uh, how they play it. I'm recording this at noon central, so I think we have about an hour before they release the decision. I might not get this released in time um, to do that, but uh, one thing that I'm watching is the last 10 days of the stock markets. The Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500 are all up, I think, nine days straight before today. Um, that hasn't happened in a while, and it doesn't happen very often that it goes up. It's in, it's green for the day for nine days in a row. Um, uh, I think that there is a little bit of priming the pump here. Look what happened last December when they raised rates a quarter percent. It, the market crashed. It had, we had the worst January in the history of the stock market. Um, at least the United States stock market, the worst January. And, uh, they're probably expecting a similar thing. So I think they might have been priming the pump here on these, these stocks to push them up, get the plunge protection team going, push them up full force, buy this market up, give some cushion. So now when the hike does come and it does drop 10%, well, it just went up 10%. So, you know, a 10, 20% drop doesn't look as bad, uh, as it would have if they wouldn't have bought this, primed this market up by buying it up. Um, I think that's, that's kind of important to look at. Um, I don't think it's a, like some sort of, it's definitely not a rally on fundamentals. Um, and I, it doesn't really feel that like, oh, this is, we're in great economic times. We need to be going up 10 days in a row. I, I just don't feel that out there. I don't think anybody really feels that. I've seen some uh, average to disappointing numbers for the holiday season. Um, the labor partition, labor participation rate is really low. So, uh, historic lows, like multi-decade lows. So, uh, I don't think a lot of the public is out there feeling really good. I haven't taken a look at the consumer confidence numbers, but 
if it is up, you know, that's contrarian thing right there. You just, it's going to go down. Uh, another thing is these markets have rallied despite the VIX being super low. So the VIX is not pricing in any of this. And this could just crash next, you know, tomorrow. Who knows? Uh, it could go down 4% tomorrow. Uh, another thing that people are looking at is what's Trump's reaction going to be? I listened to an interview um, on, what is it? What's the youtube channel called like uh main street for wall street or wall street for main street something like that and they had a former uh, fed assistant to a fed governor or something like that a fed insider on the show and she was really good i really enjoyed the interview and she was saying like hey trump is probably going to get you know Whoever he puts on there is going to drastically change the Federal Reserve makeup. Um, he, he needs to have friendly people on the Federal Reserve to, um, kind of, you know, get them in his, on his side. So when he does try to do all this spending and stuff, that, uh, he has a friendly Fed to help him. Uh, one of the things too, I mean, he wants to spend trillion dollars or something on some stupid wall. He's going to need to have some friendly, uh, you know, cheap dollar to do that. Uh, it, plus, he, he knows the numbers. He knows that if it, the interest rates go up to 2% or something, that the U.S. is broke. I mean, it's broke right now, but it won't be able to meet its payments if it goes up to like 2%. So he understands that. Um, what else? So people are wor worrying about what he's going to tweet. After Janet Yellen announces this, I think that's pretty telling. That's pretty awesome that the, you know, mainstream financial press is losing so much clout that people are hanging on whether Trump's going to tweet afterwards. Um, no one believes these mainstream financial people anymore anyway. So, um, I don't know what else there really is to say about this. I think a lot of people, um, are following this. A lot of people are interested in this. Uh, they, they rose 25 basis points last December. They're going to rise 25 basis points this December. Maybe, uh, I saw some numbers where 8% of people are saying 50 basis points they're expecting. So that's a possibility too. Um, is it politically motivated? I mean, there's all sorts of questions swirling around this. Um, I'll definitely go into detail on the next podcast. I wanted to try to get out some thoughts before the FOMC met today um, and at least get this out there for people to listen to. But um, I, I'm generally worried about the economy. I'm generally worried about the stock market. Um, I don't want to see people lose money, but I think it's going to happen eventually. You know, all of these, all of these, the stock markets at uh, all time highs on historically low volume, it's all high frequency trading and they, um, the people get front run every single nanosecond. The, your broker's front running you before you buy. Even if it's by a fraction of a penny, they're front running you. Um, also uh, on efficient market, talking about efficient markets, Fed day is always, uh, you know, has traditionally outperformed other days, the average day. So how is that possible? If the Fed, uh, if, if, you know, we have these efficient markets, the, that day should not be any different than any other day. 
another thing too, if you look at the front running and stuff, uh, and the Nanex trading, like there's a company called Nanex that looks at these millisecond trades, uh, nanosecond trades, and they see that like if the market between two and three a.m., like uh, Eastern time in the U.S., that has like if you bought at two and sold at three, you would always be making profit. I mean, you would you would outperform the market trading in those that one hour time frame on the overnight markets than any other time frame. You'd outperform it considerably. So how is that an efficient market? Not everybody can trade at that time either, by the way, right? So it's a little bit of insider stuff. It's the elites trading, the elites, you know, getting their fill at that time and then selling it off to the suckers during the day. Um, last thing I wanted to point out was Barry Silbert had a tweet. I thought it was pretty, pretty funny. This is kind of what I've been thinking lately is like, uh, okay, this is what it says. Higher oil prices, bullish. Low oil prices, bullish. Raising rates, bullish. Low rates, bullish. Strengthening dollar, bullish. Weak dollar, bullish. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, everything is bullish. There is no real market. None of these, there is no fundamentals, right? It's all just uh, cheap money, low interest rates. There's no way, I'm, yeah, okay, they raised it to half a percentage point. Now say that out loud. Half a percentage point. In two years. It took them two years to raise it half a percentage point. If you look at the history of the Fed and all the other like uh, raises and decreases and all that stuff, I mean, they, they could go 1% in one meeting. And then three months later, they do another percent, you know, or whatever. At quarter of a point? Give me a break. There's something fundamentally wrong with this market if they can't raise rates. There's something fundamentally wrong with this market when, when, uh, we've been on z basically zero, half a percentage point is basically zero for eight years. Zero percent interest rate for eight years. Ask anybody that's been trading for more than those eight years, like 20 years and be like, do you realize we've been zero for eight years? <laughs> it is beyond comprehension. And you know, uh, there's something like a third of bonds around the world, uh, sovereign bonds that are under 0%. <laughs> it, it, there's something fundamentally wrong with this market and this FOMC. I mean, there, there is no market other than the Fed and we see this on full display today. All right. Again, sorry for not getting this out before I tweeted out at 1230 thinking I might get this uh, episode done, but it didn't happen. So, okay. So the fed did raise, um, to 0.5 and now it's coming out that, you know, they Yellen is saying, okay, well, we're going to raise rates twice in 2017. That's what we're expecting. Remember, they said they wanted to raise rates four times in 2016, and this will be once. Um, so maybe they're not, they're trying to set themselves a lower bar because they never follow through with their predictions. They're always wrong. Always. Fucking always. So this is too, um, 
you know, they'll probably have to decrease rates. I don't know, but they're, 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 they're moving the goalposts a little bit, seeing if they can maybe work that out. Because remember, if, if you think four rates or uh, four rate heights in 2016 are, is coming up, uh, that can affect your, um, the market performance in January. And we had the worst January on record in 2016 after the, the initial rate hike last December. So maybe this time they're saying, okay, well, we want to temper that a little bit and we want to say we're only going to raise rates twice. How does the market react to that? They're kind of flying by the seat of their pants. And I also want to point out that, um, I, I don't know if they believe their own BS, right? Everybody knows that the unemployment numbers that they release like it went down to 4.6 percent or something everybody knows that that is total bs that is total bs the labor participation rate <laughs> is like it's 66 percent or something like that and back in 2007 it was at 75 percent tens of millions of people out of the labor force that they're not counting. So everybody knows that the unemployment rate is BS plus. A lot of the jobs that they're counting are part-time jobs. The largest growing sectors for jobs is waitresses and bartenders. Um, so everybody knows it's BS, but does the Fed actually believe it? You know, like a lot of these people, um, who knows if the, the anchors at CNN and, uh, MSNBC and all these places, if they believe what they say, I, I can't, I, do they believe, you know, they did, uh, remember there was this Rachel Maddow piece, I saw a, a video of it just the other day, and she was laughing at Trump, saying, oh my God, Trump is going to lose all of these swing states, he might as well drop out now, uh, how can anyone take him seriously? Yada, yada. Now, do they really believe that? Or are they just parroting the party line? Are they consciously running propaganda? That's a, that's a good question. But the Fed, do they believe their own propaganda? They're supposed to be smart people, but they're stupid. They've been on 0% for eight years. So do they believe their own propaganda? I don't know. I really don't. Um, I don't know if they could keep their story straight if they didn't really believe it. So uh, they probably do. They probably believe their own propaganda. <laughs> Flashpoint. Since the very beginning of my podcast, I've been talking about these trade wars that are coming um, that we can see on the horizon. And one of the very first shows I talked about the steel trade wars, uh, some of the steel tariffs that were being raised around the world, uh, starting with the U.S. and then China and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the EU got into it. Well, this is an article from um, it's on mishtalk.com. It's Mish Shedlock. I, I Read is I used to read it all the time, but I I only read his blog every once in a while. This one is specifically uh, about trade wars, and he is in total agreement with me on this. 
Um, he's been warning about the increased likelihood of serious global of a serious global trade war for quite some time. Um, and I think this global trade war is inevitable, right? Um, we, we are in a long, long-term recession. And a lot of people will say <laughs> the mainstream financial press, the mainstream economists, they will tell you that we are in recovery, you know, that unemployment is down, even though labor, labor participation rate is at uh, multi-decade lows. And that we are in recovery and we can start raising rates and, and all this stuff. Um, but we're not. The economy hasn't really done anything. We've had an inflation of financial assets. That's about it. Stocks, bonds, real estate, those types of things. Um, and since the economy isn't picking up and real people are hurting, real businesses that make shit are shutting down, then you have this rise in protectionism. And people wanting to protect the domestic industries over international rivals. And that's very popular politically to do that. Look what Trump won. One of his major campaign pla uh, parts of his platform was to make America great again and to bring jobs back here. But the whole dynamic is, is not... Uh, people don't understand it as a layperson out there, um, what the dynamic is. For example, NAFTA. Trump is saying we got a bad rap on NAFTA. The U.S. did. But, in fact, NAFTA increased jobs in the United States. It increased jobs. Let me read this little snippet from... God, where is it on this article? Where the hell is it? It was just here. <laughs> okay, here it is. This is uh, Sam Steets, and the article is entitled "In Defense of Free Trade." It's part. It's linked in this Mish article, so um, that's that's where I found it. But this this is a quote from that article. Uh, I want to address NAFTA because it's the boogeyman of the left, and according to Trump, a quote, a bad deal. NAFTA was actually a very successful free trade agreement. When it was implemented, the number of American jobs increased. Of course, some low-skilled labor was displaced, but because NAFTA increased the size of the overall economy, it actually increased the demand for labor and boosted employment in the U.S. So that is, that is missing on the layperson. Um, most likely because the layperson is uneducated, right? And they... They uh, might have been that low-skilled labor that got displaced. And the low-skilled labor was in uh, these predominantly Democrat areas, even though Bill Clinton was the one that passed NAFTA, um, in these low-income areas that are on, like, uh, government assistance and vote Democrat. And so, of course, the Democrats are going to say that NAFTA was a bad deal. Free trade is a bad deal. Because they thrive on the low-information voter, the low-educated voter. Um, Trump, though, is showing that he does as well. Because he, he calls it a bad deal. He says we need to bring jobs back here. Which, actually, if we want to go back to the way it was, we'd have to take away jobs. 
the total amount of jobs has increased in the United States because of NAFTA. So if we want to get a better deal, I mean, what does he mean? Like go back to the way they were, think, go back to the way things were and, and take jobs away? Shrink the economy? See, the layperson doesn't understand these arguments. They don't go past the surface here. But trade increases economic activity. I mean, that's what it is at the heart. That's in the definition of what trade is. And international trade just increases economic activity internationally for everyone. The freer the trade or the the fewer restrictions placed on that trade by the um, corresponding governments, the better it is for growth of the overall economy. Yes, low-income work will go probably overseas. But a good way to fix that is to stop trying to inflate the money, take monetary policy out of the hands of the government. That is what's driving most of this uh, loss of manufacturing and things like that because financial gains are much bigger than manufacturing gains, actually making stuff. Because when you inflate currency, you know, you, you, you inflate these financial assets more than anything else, which is what we see in stocks and things. Okay, well, let's get back to the trade war here. The trade war is going on, and it's, it's, there's a few more blows. I talked about the steel tariffs um, in previous episodes, but now it looks like there's, there's starting to be some more battles here. And it is centering around the WTO, um, the World Trade Organization. China has, this is from Mish's thing, and uh, he it's from a link. He linked to some other article. Uh, China is, has launched a legal challenge against the EU and U.S. over their reluctance to treat it as a quote-unquote market economy under World Trade Organization rules. So in, in World Trade Organization, you have to, if you are a uh, market economy, that means like, you know, you have prices freely fluctuate, you have um, good regulations that promote property and promote uh, uh, entrepreneurism and uh, promote business in general. Um, I'd have to look up exactly what those those rules are. But uh, if you are classified as a market economy, you get di- you you get different rules applied to your trade deals um, under the WTO. So the U.S. and the EU don't want China to be considered a market economy because they would get even more preferential treatment and the U.S. and the EU couldn't compete. At least that's what they think. So anyway, uh, continuing on here, Beijing is unhappy with the pr- with a provision that allows trading partners to use a special formula and prices in third countries to calculate punitive tariffs for non-market economies in anti-dumping cases. It's a uh, it is pushing for the provision to expire with Sunday's fifteenth anniversary of the WTO membership. But the EU, U.S., Japan, and other WTO members have resisted the move, prompting China on Monday to take the first step in launching a case with the uh, global trade regulator. In a statement, China's Commerce Ministry said it has requested consultants or consultations with both 
the EU and the U.S. and would seek to have a WTO panel rule. Quote, China has communicated through many channels for the third country comparison to expire. What's very regrettable is that the EU and U.S. have not acted to allow it to expire. It has had a severe impact on Chinese exports. In the EU, fears of an onslaught of cheap Chinese goods prompted the European Commission to recommend a fundamental shift in how it conducts anti-dumping cases. Under EU rules, Brussels imposes a 21% tariff on the same steel products uh, that were hit with a 266% U.S. tariff in 2015. And that's the tariff that I talked about, the 266% U.S. tariff. In a sign of the commercial stakes... The U.S. on Friday imposed punitive anti-dumping tariffs on Chinese-made washing machines, imports of which into the U.S. were worth more than $1.1 billion last year. It also announced the launch of an, of an anti-dumping investigation into plywood imports from China, which were also worth more than $1 billion last year. Those U.S. cases and the fight over Beijing's market economy status point to the trade battles already being fought with China, even as Trump, the incoming president, promises to get tough with Beijing over trade and other issues. Quote, one of the most important relations we must improve is our relationship with China, Mr. Trump said last week. China is responsible for almost half of America's trade deficit, and they haven't played by the rules. <laughs> so this is bad. I mean, there is a there is a trade war on the horizon. And this is going to affect everybody. Geopolitics affects the economy. It's not like the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones is insulated from all of these trade wars and stuff. No, of course not. Here's an example. Boeing now, Boeing, uh, their biggest customer is China, even though it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like a state, um, it's a state sponsored enterprise in the United States, uh, Boeing is, but their biggest customer is China with 292 orders in backlog and China is threatening them. So, Hey, us Boeing's a big part of your economy. If you don't shape up we're gonna switch our orders over to airbus from boeing and let boeing fucking burn okay i mean this rhetoric is getting heated that is not something that you say with a trade that's not a threat you make against the trade partner that you're getting along with um Okay, let's just I, – I could go on and on about this trade stuff because this is super, super important for the global economy in general, global markets. Um, but I wanted to read something about the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Um, if you guys know, this is um, right during the Great Depression or right at the beginning of the Great Depression. Maybe it was – yeah, it was like 1930 and um, – they put on these huge tariffs because they wanted to protect the U.S. industries and help uh, the struggling companies that they said were having to compete against cheap foreign goods, just like today. All right, so this is part of, or this is in um, 
relation to the Smoot-Hawley tariff, I'll just read this part too. Retaliation. Threats of retaliation by other countries began long before the bill was enacted into law in June of 1930. There you go, 1930. As it passed the House of Representatives in May uh, 1929, boycotts broke out, and foreign governments moved to increase rates against American products, even though rates could be increased or decreased by the Senate or by the Conference Committee. By September 2000, uh, 2000. by September 1929, Hoover's administration had received protest notes from 23 trading partners, but threats of retaliation, retaliatory actions were ignored. In May 1930, Canada, the country's most loyal trading partner, retaliated by imposing new tariffs on 16 products that accounted altogether for around 30% of U.S. exports to Canada. Canada later also forged closer economic links with the British Empire via the British Empire Economic Conference in 1932. France and Britain protested and developed new trade partners. Germany developed a system of autarky. In 1932, with the Depression only having worsened for workers and farmers, despite Smoot and Hawley's promises of prosperity from a high tariff, the two lost their seats in the elections that year. So it always starts as popular, but the reality sets in pretty quickly that tariffs are a bad thing, a very, very bad thing. These are the same mistakes that we've made time and time again. And when if tariffs come in, the economy goes down. It's very easy to predict. The higher the tariffs, the worse the economy. That's it. Period. How's that for efficient markets? <laughs> you can't predict this. If, if tariffs go up, the economy goes down. Plain and simple. So if we're using all this strong rhetoric from everywhere, right? It's not just the U.S. and China. It's Japan. It's the EU. It's Russia. Um, all the players internationally are talking trade wars here. And when goods don't cross borders, armies do. So this is going to end up in warfare. How modern war is since the rise of the Internet... I don't know exactly what to expect. That's one of the things I think a lot about is what war is going to look like. Because when you go superpower versus superpower, you can't really have an all-out war anymore. And everybody knows that. It's just like if you have two guys with guns, then they're pointing guns at each other. Well, they decide, let's, let's just fight it out. Let's have a fist fight. So that is what I'm thinking. Like... There's probably going to be lots and lots of cyber war. Um, why do you need to bomb a power plant when you can take it down through the elect, you know, through uh, the electrical grid or through cyber warfare? Anyway, uh, how these coming wars will look is still a question mark, but they're coming. Trade wars are coming unless there is some radical shift, radical radical shift. Um, we're going to have trade wars, and real wars follow trade wars. That's all there is to it. I mean, there will be depression, and then there will be real war. Um, hopefully, Bitcoin will be able to uh, prevail here, right? They, in these currency wars, um, 
which trade currency war is just another kind of trade war, I guess you could say, um, currency wars, Bitcoin is going to take the lead. It's going to, it's built for this. It's built for financial crises. And that's what we're starting to see again. This will be the first financial crisis coming up here that we've had Bitcoin. And this is what Bitcoin was built for. So I think it's going to perform very, very well. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you guys for listening. My name is Ansel Lindner. This is Bitcoin and Markets. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at bitcoinandmarkets.com. I have a donate page and also um, on each post there that's for an episode, I have a, a code, a, a Bitcoin address in there. Also, I'm adding a PayPal option so you can pay me via PayPal just to make it a little bit easier. I know you guys probably don't like spending your Bitcoins. Every little bit helps. Uh, I do this. I, I don't pump my uh, donations like some other podcasts out there. Uh, I don't have advertisers. I'm trying to do this just raw content. So if you guys could donate, you know, a dollar an episode, that would be very much appreciated. The show notes that you can find there are pretty extensive. I write a little bit about each segment that I do and give links to all the source material. If you guys would like to send in questions or stories to me, please do so on the website. I'm thinking about doing a question episode here coming up. Uh, that would be pretty fun. So if you want to send those in, uh, that'd be great. I'll just add them to the list and then I'll run through them on, on a uh, future episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, uh, share this content. Appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.